0: Hi everyone, welcome to episode number seventy-seven of the Lift Free and Die Hard podcast. I'm your host Andrew Coates, and I'm honored to bring on a very long overdue guest. Um, but her first time here, it's Molly Galbraith. You guys have—I'm sure you've heard of Molly. She's a founder, co-founder, I suppose, is technically correct of Girls Gone Strong, which is a big brand in our space, an author, and a very influential figure not only in the fitness industry but beyond it. And this is something I love. Is when we have people like my good friend, Sohee Lee, who we're talking about off air, who have been able to penetrate the mainstream space and media beyond just the, our little niche in the, of the evidence-based fitness community. So Molly, you've done work with Yale University, Johns Hopkins, Time Magazine, ABC, uh, and a laundry list of very, very big fitness publications. So it's great to have you on.
1: Thank you so much. And to clarify, I have done work with some of those organizations, but also other folks within Girls Gone Strong have consulted with, collaborated with, worked at. So a lot of our experts, you know, they are that, you know, working at Baylor Medical or they've worked at Johns Hopkins and things like that. So yeah, we have a very incredible, while on the face of Girls Gone Strong, um, anything that we create within the organization, whether it's an article to what all the way up to like one of our certifications, has been touched by half a dozen to you know, two dozen amazing interdisciplinary industry experts.
0: Always giving, sharing the credit, right? And <laughs> you're, good, you're good about this too. You're good about highlighting good people, in the industry who are doing good things. We were talking about that off that off air. But let's get to something that uh, certainly I liked. We met mm-hmm. for the first time in, I mean, in all my travels, and I know you do a lot of events. First time at Raise the Bar in Orlando, Nick and Derek did a really wonderful event. And uh, you your presentation was a lot about how to serve better serve women for, uh, you know, as fitness professionals in the fitness industry, because I built, what is the statistic? Like 60% of fitness consumers are women.
1: Yeah. So on average, somewhere between like, you know, 66 to 75% of people who hire a health fitness or
0: nutrition professional are women. Right. So that's like staggering. That's just, wow. Just let that sink in. And yet, as you pointed out in this presentation, I've got to kind of let you go there. Like, uh, what do coaches need to know? The biggest stuff to change the experience for the better for women, both from a personal coaching experience and you know anybody who has, say, a, a gym or creating an environment for women. I'll just let you go wherever you want with that.
1: Ooh, all right. This will be an easy 45 minutes. OK, now I'm just <laughs> so we uh, well, you know, we've we've so we've created two certifications about it. One of them's 600 pages. One of them's over 500 pages. So there is a lot to know about coaching women. And that's what I think so frustrating is that women have so often been treated like a special population. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and, and so you're reading your, you know, kind of -of run-of-the-mill certification textbook, you're, you know, um, going to school for kinesiology or exercise science. And in that entire time, you might get a paragraph about a woman's menstrual cycle, or, you know, like a Q Q angle or whatever. Like there's just hardly any information um, that's specific to coaching women or, like, you know, when we talk about things like body image or disordered eating, it's not that men aren't impacted by struggles with body image or disordered eating. It's just that they significantly impact women more. So the majority of um, people who hire a health fitness or nutrition professional are women, and yet very few of um, certs or courses or any type of educational materials um, talk about working with this population. So that's kind of the heart of what we do at girls come strong is provide this evidence-based interdisciplinary information. So if we're going to tackle some of the big things, it'd be things like body image. So 81% of women in the U S and 80% of women in Canada, this was a 2016 dove global beauty and confidence report. Um, so the 81% of women in the U S 80% of women in Canada, um, actually feel dissatisfied with their bodies. 79% of young girls, at uh, 10 year, 10 years old are afraid of being fat. They also recommend, or they also um, opt out of activities that are important to them because they don't think that they look good enough to. So this is young girls who are literally not going out for the school play, raising their hand in class, trying out for the soccer team, et cetera, because they don't feel like their bodies look good enough. And we can think like, oh man, that's ridiculous. But then when you think back to yourself, your clients or women in your life, you're like, how many of them have missed out on going to a wedding or reunion because they don't think their bodies look good enough? How many of them have avoided being in pictures or videos with their children? Or they hide behind their kids because they don't want to be seen in those photos? How many of them have avoided a beach vacation or going to the lake or the pool, or if they go, they won't actually get in and play with their kids because they don't want to do that walk across the beach or that walk across the pool deck to get into the water because they're so embarrassed of how their bodies look. How many women? say, you know, burn up and wear pants all summer because they don't want to be seen in shorts, right? So we see this reflected from women to girls. So they're, we're literally making choices about the activities that we do and the way that we live our lives and often opt out because we don't feel like we look good enough to. So body image is a huge one and feel free to pop in at any time. Cause I can just, I can just keep going. Disordered eating is another big one. So this, um, this comes from a, a survey. It's a little bit older, but a 2008 survey between UNC and self magazine, they surveyed over 4,000 college age women and up to 75% of them report engaging in disordered eating habits. Now, to be clear, disordered eating is different from a clinically diagnosable eating disorder. So if we think about eating behaviors on a spectrum, on one end, we have healthy eating behaviors. On the other end, we have clinically diagnosable eating disorders, things like bulimia and anorexia, um, binge eating disorder even. And then the middle, we have these kind of what would be considered disordered habits that are often so glorified in health and fitness, which is part of the problem. We don't even realize we have it. And when people are like, oh, well, it's just, you know, kind of some weird eating behavior, what's the big deal? Well, having disordered eating is the biggest predictor of developing an eating disorder, mm. which is the deadliest of all mental health conditions. And that is only counting people who, um, you know, it's kind of tricky when, if uh, if someone dies from that, because sometimes they're dying from things that maybe don't always it's not always kind of counted under the eating disorder thing. They're dying of like heart failure or something else. Um, and so it's a little tricky. So they think the number is actually higher, but what's classified as specifically dying from the eating disorder, still the deadliest of all mental health conditions. So body image is really huge. Disordered eating is really huge. Um, pelvic health is really huge. So a, a lot of super interesting, um, statistics there. So the stats vary significantly, but some ones that really stick out to me are, there was a, um, survey done, I think in 2016 in Perth, Western Australia. So Australia is always doing really great work in the field of pelvic health, but they surveyed three, I think 383 women ages 18 to 83, who were going to an exercise class, a group fitness class. Um, and they asked how many of them experienced stress urinary incontinence. So leaking when you cough, sneeze, laugh, jump, exercise, And I believe 50% or 49.6% of them said that they had experienced stress urinary incontinence. This was regardless of whether or not they had children. So 50% of women 18 to 83 were experiencing stress urinary incontinence when they exercise. Only 15% have been screened by their healthcare provider, or sorry, by their coach or trainer. And that number, 15%, is Vastly higher in Australia because there's so much more awareness in that part of the world than there than there truly is in U.S., Canada, North America. Um, when I did a poll in my stories asking women, same question, I think 75% of them said that they had experienced stress urinary incontinence, and I think seven percent had been screened by a health professional. Either way exact numbers matter a little bit less than the massive discrepancy in the number of women who are experiencing it. And the number of women who are being screened for it. And even coaches who know to screen for it, a lot of them think it's outside their scope of practice. And then last stat there, um, uh, up to 19% of women, this is the one that blows my mind. And the one I think so few people talk about, cause there's so much shame around it up to 19% of women will have surgery for pelvic organ prolapse or incontinence by the time they're 85 and 30% of them will have multiple surgeries. So people again, incontinence, involuntary loss of urine, there can also be fecal incontinence, which is involuntary loss of feces or flatal incontinence, which is gas. Um, But this is talking about incontinence in general. And then pelvic organ prolapse is when one or more of um, the pelvic organs start to descend toward or even through the exit of the vagina. So for some women, pelvic organ prolapse gets to the point where the organ is actually protruding a bit outside the body, right? up to 19% of women, one in five. Now I don't, this isn't to scare everyone. It's, you know, it's not like women shouldn't lift weights and they shouldn't do these things. Right. It's just having an awareness of like these women don't talk about this kind of stuff, right. They're not going to walk around and say, yeah, you know, I was having this issue and I was having, you know, this bulge and I wasn't sure what was going on. And I had to have surgery for it. Like, that's just not a common thing that women talk about. And the thing, The reason I'm so passionate about health and fitness professionals understanding this is because we can play such an enormous role. Like we have a superpower to create incredibly positive change in women's lives, to help them feel significantly better about their bodies, to encourage them to have a healthy relationship with food, to understand the signs of pelvic floor dysfunction and understand who to refer them to for assessment and for treatment. Um, And we just play such a key role. Like we spend more time with women than any other person on their healthcare team. They're more likely to open up to us. They have more time with us. And if we understand all these important topics, Within our and understand what our scope of practice is and know who all the other professionals on our team can be to refer clients to, we can have an incredibly positive impact in women's lives and their overall health.
0: There's a lot there, right? And I kind of hope, if anything, that just wakes a lot of people up to go, Holy shit, I haven't been thinking about a lot of that. There's so much to unpack there, and we, we won't have enough time to go into too much depth. But certainly, one of the things I found it's been tricky to find good resources on women's mental health as it affects training. And traditionally, there have been two individuals resources that have popped up that seem to put information out there. And I'm not going to name names because the first one I find is a malevolent human being who is really quite awful in his interactions with almost everybody else in the industry. He's even sniped at me before. So sorry, not interested. And then two, the other individual wrote a book that was put onto me. And the book had such glaring errors about basic concepts of nutrition and training that it made me question, all right, how good is this information about the mental stuff? What are some of your preferred resources, maybe some professionals you're aligned with, and and some of what Girls Gone Strong has on that front?
1: Yeah. So we've created some videos. We've created a number of articles. We talk, we dive deep into it in our certifications and we're, we're going to be doing even more on it, um, on it very soon. We've been deep in, um, revamping one of our certifications for the last year and a half. So it's sucked up a lot of woman power, but let me give people the general overarching kind of what we know now about women and menstrual cycle, because here's the thing. It is incredibly important, um, to, understand that for a lot of women, they personally are going to be impacted by their menstrual cycle, whether they have pelvic pain, whether they have cramps, whether they have endometriosis, whether they have polycystic ovarian syndrome, um, they have just really inconvenient, heavy bleeding, right? There are so many things that come up with our menstrual cycle at this point in time, the evidence does not point toward, so there's say this, there's more variation amongst individual women and their experiences with their cycle than there is among women on average throughout their cycle. So if you look at where, if you, you know, study 500 women and what things look like for them through the luteal phase and the follicular phase and through, um, uh, you know, ovulation and, and the, the, when they're actually bleeding, there is less variation across the cycle than if you pull me out and say, okay, what's Molly's follicular phase like versus you know Sarah's follicular phase or whatever. So on average, there's less variation across the menstrual cycle than there is <clears throat> between individual women. So what this means is it doesn't mean that women can't or shouldn't um, alter what they're doing with their training and nutrition throughout their menstrual cycle. What it does mean is that there are no blanket recommendations. That makes sense for all women, right? Some women have significantly more pain during ovulation. Some women have a lot more pain the week leading up to their period. Some women have more pain while they're actually bleeding. Um, Some women feel like, uh, like for me, when I'm on my period, I actually have a harder time managing intra-abdominal pressure. So doing activities that are um, a lot heavier or where I'm having to brace a lot harder is not a good idea for me during my menstrual cycle. I have a friend who can't deadlift the week after her cycle or the week after she bleeds because she always tends to injure her back afterwards. We don't actually know why, right? She's a PhD in exercise science and nutrition. And she's like, I don't know. Like, I have no idea why it happens. So while it's important to learn about some of the different changes that happen to what happens to women's bodies throughout, there are at this point, no blanket recommendations that apply across all women. So it's really important. Well, first it's important if you're a health and fitness professional, um, to get consent from your client, to have these conversations with her. So one of the things that we do on our intake forms at girls gun strong is we have kind of like a boundary section where we say, Hey, there are a number of topics that, um, if we're able to have conversations about this could have a positive impact on your results, you know, working with me, which of these topics are you comfortable having conversations about? Cause for some of them, they might not want to talk about their menstrual cycle, but they might not want to talk about their nutrition. If they have a history of disordered eating, if they have a history of struggling with that, if they have a, you know, um, toddler at home and they're not sleeping, they might not want to talk about their sleep, right? Like you never know what topic for them is going to be something that they're not interested in discussing that they want to, that they want to stay off limits. So we actually have a boundary section, kind of a consent section on our intake form that says, Hey, which of these are you comfortable talking about? You know, nutrition, pelvic health, sleep stress, you know, menstrual cycle, the hormones, blah, 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 whatever. And say like, Hey, just, you know, if you're open to having these conversations, like, great, I can look at this. I could check the box and say, okay, my client's cool to have this conversation with me about it.
0: There's, there's just (laughs) a ton in here and I'm sitting back because, you know, I, I feel like I'm a little out of my depth in terms of some of these things. And I think it's actually okay, especially for male professionals to sit back and do that, which is why it's so important to know about these resources within all the stuff you said, I think another really good example, I guess more recently, there's been, um, I suppose, a fairly viral video of a power lifter who was like visibly, she was peeing on the platform between reps of heavy deadlifts. So you probably seen it. And I think there's sort of two extremes that I don't think either is helpful. One is the glorification of it. And then the other is the, the shaming of it. And I'm of the impression from the conversations I've had with people who know what they're talking about that this is not something that you have to accept. So, any thoughts on not necessarily specifically that video, yeah. but it, it's getting talked about and we're seeing more of it. So go. Yeah,
1: I got a lot of thoughts. I'm like rubbing my hands together, like salivating to talk about it. So, because it's a topic I really love, as you can imagine we fall into the camp the autonomy camp right so we fall into the camp that women get to decide what they do with their own bodies and you are correct in saying that it's important for women to understand that incontinence incontinence anytime whether they're laughing sneezing coughing jumping running lifting um doesn't have to be something that they live with there's a lot that can be done about it and there is for um, certain athletes a point at which, no matter how much pelvic floor muscle training they do, no, no matter how much physiotherapy they get, they're going to leak a little bit when they lift. And for some women, it's at a certain like absolute number. So for some women, it's at 400 pounds. They're going to leak every time, whether they get to the point where 500 is their max, they get to the point where 460 is their max. And for some women, it's going to be at a percentage. So for some women, at 95%. They're going to leak, right? And that number is going to go up over time as they get stronger and as their pelvic floor gets used to handling that particular load. Um, but at that point, it's one of those things where it's like, cool, competing in an elite level and a lot of things comes with some sort of like trade off, some sort of cost associated with it related to health, right?
0: Marathoners, like we see images of marathoners who have, I'm going to put it bluntly, have shit themselves and in the runs and that, and that actually can be a thing. And it's okay. I, I like, I, I appreciate yeah. going with this. So I'm to let you continue.
1: Yeah. So there's, so I think it's important to recognize that there's, um, that there's always going to be a cost. So I think the education piece where we say, Hey, like, you know, you're leaking urine when you're working out. Like, it seems like there's actually quite a bit. There's probably a lot that can be done for this. If you're interested in getting this sort of treatment. Like here's what we recommend because there, um, it's a sign that, you know, that your pelvic floor is not able to withstand the amount of pressure. And over time that can lead to some other adverse effects, like things like pelvic organ prolapse or pelvic pain, et cetera. Um, and so I think the education piece around, Hey, you don't have to live with leaking. If you don't want to, there's a lot that can be done for it. There are some potential negative side effects And then also recognizing that at some point that, you know, for some athletes, there is going to be some leaking at that really top kind of rate. Now, if she's leaking at 60%, that's different, right? Than leaking at 95% of her one rep max, right? There's probably a lot more that can be done about that leaking at 60%. Um, And so, yeah, I think there's just a lot of pieces to it. There's an important education piece so folks understand that something can be done. There's the piece of recognizing that there's always going to be a cost or a trade-off when you're doing any sort of athletic feet at a really high level. There's the autonomy piece where we don't shame women who want to make those choices. And then there's helping her understand that there could be some um, long-term negative impacts if she's continuing to do this and not also getting treatment. If she's getting treatment, she's leaking once a week or, you know, once every three weeks or whatever, when she gets above 90, 95%, whatever her training program is like, probably not that big of a deal might be a bigger deal. If there are other inciting factors, like multiple pregnancies, you know, vaginal births, a history of, you know, connective tissue issues, or, you know, her mom had pelvic organ collapse, whatever, again, always going to be things that can kind of move the needle one way or the other in terms of what it does to her risk factor for developing other conditions. But I think there's, there's a lot of pieces to it, education, autonomy, like, you know, understanding the cost trade-off, et cetera. And I think that nuance, right? Like no one talks about that nuance. Like you can't find that nuance in an Instagram comment.
0: Right, and nuance isn't sexy. It doesn't like, it doesn't push well on media. But I, I noticed notice that with your your media, it tends to have nuance, right? And most of the people I think that are in our greater circle and sphere tend to actually do the nuance quite well. I want to get into some career stuff, but there's one more thing I want to like touch on. I don't know you. You may have some added thoughts, and it, it's you alluded to it earlier, and I know um, Dr. Susan Kleiner did a presentation on this 2017. First time I met Sue, and it's about how women on average, even if their goals are performance-based, will face the dual pressure, again, like I said, on average, of looking a certain way, more so than men. So the appearance of leanness, and I'll give you the example. When have we ever cared about what most male athletes look like, right? You've got Phil Kessel down in Arizona, if you know NHL at all, right? So Phil is sort of like, sort of glorified a little bit for kind of always being into the hot dogs. He's not an NHL player. Who's normally known for being like, kind of look like Christian, Cristiano Ronaldo. Ronaldo is probably on the other end of the spectrum, right? They celebrate him for his abs. But outside of that, when have we ever heard comments or criticisms about male tennis players bodies compared to what gets said about female tennis players and it transcends other sports. So, at least when we're training women, especially if you're dealing with athletic populations, performance, you know, I certainly like to point trainers to the fact that women are often under pressure to look a certain way. And if that pressure manifests as dietary restriction or orthorexic tendencies towards like overexertion to control leanness, that can be in conflict with recovery and performance. I don't know if you wanted to like sort of add that. Yeah.
1: No, I think you're, I think you're absolutely right. And I actually got to talk to um, Dr. Sue Kleiner about this. She's an absolute legend, legend in our field. Do you know her, sorry, super quick. Do you know her story about how they didn't actually have a PhD in nutrition when she went to school for it? And she saw it it was at another university. And so she's (laughs) like, she went to, I guess the Dean, I'm probably butchering the exact details. And she was like, I want to get a PhD in this. And they're like, Oh, that's not a thing. And she's like, I'm going to make it. Yes, it is there. This university is doing it. They're like, okay, if you can kind of cobble the coursework together or whatever, we'll give you, we'll give you a PhD in it. So she is such an absolute legend in, um, in the industry. She's amazing. But I actually talked to her behind the scenes about that exact topic and about some of the professional athletes that she's worked with, female athletes that she's worked with, who were, who were literally competing at the highest level in their sport. And they were um, eating, trying to eat 1500 calories a day. And they were constantly getting injured and, you know, struggling with, um, yeah, like you said, under recovery. And it was because they were afraid to eat more than that. And I just think it's, um, you know, it's so, it's such a shame that there's so much pressure and spotlight, but honestly, Andrew, it transcends sports too. Like, you know, you see a woman in politics, right. And they're talking about what, what she's wearing, or you're at a celebrity, you know, you're watching the Oscars and they're like, Um, oh, your you know, your method acting was so amazing. Who are you wearing? You know what I mean? Or like, even like what underwear are you wearing under that? You're just like, what universe is this? So yeah, I think it's, it, there's an absolutely disproportionate. And again, there's pressure on folks in different ways, but there's uh, consistently women are under a lot more scrutiny to control the way that they look to under eat, to present with a certain level of leanness and they get roasted for it if they don't. And it's just, it's really sad. And I think as health and fitness professionals. We have, again, a really powerful opportunity to help them be excited about their strength, to help them understand that um, fueling themselves can help with their performance and recovery, to encourage them. One of the simplest things, it is so simple and so powerful. So there's evidence to suggest that we prefer, humans prefer body types that we see more often. And one of the most powerful things that we can do, or we can encourage our clients to do is to curate their social media feed if they are constantly following, you know, if they're a shot putter, right. And they're, they're following, um, a bunch of like fitspo influencer women who, again, nothing wrong with that. That's, that's, that's totally cool. They inspire a lot of people, but who are, you know, five, six and 110 pounds or whatever that they're going to start to feel like, or they're going to be more likely to feel like there's something wrong with their bodies. So doing a social media kind of curation or cleanse, is so powerful, not only following women of a wide variety of ages, races, shapes, sizes, ability levels, sports, things like that, but follow women for what they're doing in the world, not just how their bodies look. There are so many women out there doing cool shit, whether they're, you know, starting companies or playing sports or fighting for access or running for office or inventing things like follow them for the cool shit they're doing in the world and not just what their bodies look like.
0: That's cool. You you made me think immediately there's um, every once in a while, a very large fitness account just shows up, and starts following me. I'm like, Oh God. Okay. Let's, let's see what's going on here. This is a young woman named Dariana Nova, 700,000 followers, you know, ends up sharing one of my posts in her story. And all of a sudden I got the surge of women coming in. I'm like, all right, what's going on here. And Dariana is a young evidence-based fitness professional mother, uh, Latin. And she, has a curvy body type and she features women of all shapes, sizes and ethnic backgrounds on her media and I'm just like oh I like I like her I like this person because the media is great it's authentic she's got a big big following and it doesn't have the the taint of that fake influencer type stuff so she's someone I like sharing around because she's you know, not what you just described—that five foot six, one hundred and ten pound—and quite frankly, there's nothing wrong with that person either. Are nope. got a little cuffed with shaming women of that body type, but totally. you know what? Like, yeah, it,
1: it, I like to say it's not about who's there. Typically, it's about who's not there. You know what I mean? Like, it's not about there's something wrong with these women's bodies that we see, right? It's the fact. I mean, certainly there are some issues related to like you know the digital altering and the filters <laughs> and the things like that 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 kind of distort reality. I think it's more important to think about like, okay, we're not going to put those women down. We just want to lift up these other women um, so that people see themselves represented and can, can envision. That was a big part of what my talk was about at the raise the bar was like helping people envision, like, what is a hopeful future look like? Is health and fitness for me, right? If I'm not five, six, 110 pounds, like, can I still be healthy? Are there health behaviors that I can engage in that are actually going to make a difference? And so I think just helping people understand that, um, healthy bodies can come in all shapes and sizes and that health behaviors are significantly more important than the size of, or shape of your body. What, what are you actually engaging in on a daily basis? I think is really critical. So,
0: yeah. I mean, I, th- I think of my girlfriend when, and you met my girlfriend in Orlando, right? You met Carrie and Carrie is of Jamaican background and she is not a 110 pound little, little twig. She's very curvy and she's powerfully strong. She loves lifting heavy. So I love, um, I love that. I'll, I'll throw in one more thing too, because uh, my uh, my partner in this project, uh, Bailey Lau, we just launched our second intake. It's closed now of uh, something we're calling Forever Strength. And it's a women's online group strength training program. And it's centered around strength. And there is no language or discussion of fat loss or weight loss in it. Some of the women in the first round reported some pretty cool transformations in the 12 weeks. And they were excited, but we didn't make, we talked nutrition. We had some nutrition in there. It was for performance. And we're very, very careful. I just wasn't interested in creating something or marketing something or catering to a community that was geared towards fat loss. And it goes back to everything we, we started talking about. The The bigger part of the industry, the big entities, the and again, I'm very careful with the language of diet culture because people get really twisted up about it. But- the, the elements that are predatory within diet culture, they understand that women are the consumers and they market to those women. They market to the vulnerable people and they play upon all those statistics you just talked about. So I think as, we'll summarize it this way and then we'll move on to the career stuff. If we can be aware and alert to this stuff and be better with our messaging and plug into good resources, I think we can make a difference. So here's what I really love. Uh, I think of people like you, like Jill Coleman, Sohee, um, you guys are major role models for coaches in general, and especially for young female coaches. So anything that you'd share for coaches who are, you know, emerging, building their careers, uh, that you think would help them along their careers, anything about how they could, how they would embrace their media, various forms of media. And I'll I'll sort of do a run-on question. You can answer as you want. Uh, are there any things that you would encourage them to try to accumulate? I like to think in terms of capital. So you've written a book, you have you have the brand and you've grown the coaching and educational company, Girls Gone Strong. You've written for publications. And any potential pitfalls that you're seeing, shortcuts that you get see young female fitness professionals getting lured into, have fun with that.
1: Ooh, that's a, I'm going to have to marinate on that one for a second. And one thing that I do want to say that I think gets missed a lot, because I, I get a lot of credit for what we've done at Girls Gone Strong. And certainly I have. I have busted my tail over many, 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 many years. And even before Girls Gone Strong started, I had, let's see, Girls Gone Strong started in 2011. I had been in fitness for seven years and had three businesses before that. So, which a lot of people don't realize it's like, Oh, just jump in, start Girls Gone Strong and have success. It's like, nah, I had a software company, a fitness software company that failed. I had a gym that I sold basically at like a break even-ish, you know, I had a um, seminar business that I shut down. Um, And so I, you know, I've done a lot of things in health and fitness. And so I want to say I have a life and business partner, Casey, who is incredible. And I am so blessed because he is amazing at all of the things that I am not great at. And so I get a lot of credit for like, oh, you feel girls go strong and you're so amazing. It's like, I've had, I've had an incredible partner along the way who has filled in a lot of gaps that I have. Um, and so I just want to, I just want to point that out. It's not me running the whole thing, you know, by myself behind the scenes, like graded everything. Right. Um, so I do want to point that out, but, you know, I think one of the most critical things for health and fitness professionals is being incredibly consistent and like enjoying the process, right? If you are posting on Instagram, or you're writing an article, or you're you are, you know, trying to get published somewhere, and you're like, you know, I, I've written three articles by now, and I only have 500 followers. It's like, yo, I I got my start on actually teen if the sister site to T Nation, I got my start on figure athlete forums in 2004. I have been giving away free content online for 18 years. So people might see, you know, the Academy that we launched in 2017 or the book that I published in 2021. Right. But it's like, now nah, my journey started 18 years ago when I was giving away free information on fitness forums before Facebook had even been launched or created. And so I think consistency is really important. I think loving the process or loving what you're doing. Like I am still, and this is this, I've seen a lot of come up with a lot of people I have a lot of people who I know who have evolved away from caring about health and fitness. And I think that's totally fine. Like we all get to, you know, they were really into it for a while and they've evolved into doing other things in the industry. It's like, I still love health and fitness as much as I ever have. I might not be competing in figure or powerlifting or whatever, but it it still fascinates me to learn more about it, to read books about it, to listen to podcasts about it, to think about how we can better serve our clients, to collaborate with other professionals. So I think, Um, being consistent, understanding that success is not going to happen overnight, loving the process and not doing it just to try to become an influencer. You know, I think a lot of people who have grown just really solid businesses or really solid solopreneurships or whatever the thing is, um, they didn't start out with the intent of becoming an influencer. They were, they did work that was worthy of influence, right? They, they put out really quality information that served their community really well for a long time. And so people started following them and certainly there are exceptions to that, but I think consistency is critical. I think patience is critical. I think loving the process is critical. Um, yeah, you know, and I try to, I try to stay away from too much like quote unquote business advice because one piece actually that the best piece of advice that I've ever gotten from anyone ever is from Dr. John Berardi. you probably not noticed. Dead. Yeah. No surprise. Um, so, he is a close friend and mentor for folks who don't know. He co founded Precision Nutrition and sold it um, and sold a large chunk of it in 2017. And it's mostly retired now. But he told me many years ago, he's been a mentor for seven or eight years now. And he said, Along the way, you're going to be in rooms with people who are very smart, who are way smarter than you, and are way smarter than you about different topics. And they're going to give you advice. And you are going to have to know that they're smarter than you about that topic. Listen to their advice and decide with, what of it applies to you. And what if it doesn't apply to you? Um, he's like, cause they are never going to know your business. They're never going to know your situation the same way as you. And so it's, and he's like, and so we actually realized like, oh shit, we actually have to do this with JB's advice too. Cause JB's given us a lot of advice through the years and we've had to be like, oh, he's amazing. He's grown this company, but even his advice, we have to filter through What makes sense for us? What makes sense for Girls Gone Strong? And so I think the best piece of advice that I could possibly give is there are a lot of experts out there. There are a lot of people who are very smart. And at the same time, you have to know and understand that um, everything's contextual and that you are going to know your business and your situation better than anybody
0: else. That's pretty much a paraphrase of the famous Bruce Lee quote. You probably remember this when you've heard it. Absorb what is useful, discard what is not, add what is uniquely your own. And, mm. and and john is is wonderful he was at raise the Bar. It was The first time i got to meet him I had the pleasure of having him on so anybody listening john was one of the last episodes of the old format so as, as i said at the start 77 episodes here but there are 150 episodes on the same stream before it with my good friend dean guido dean his wife they had a baby and so he's like listen man you got to keep this going but uh you know, I've, uh, you know, I've got to bow out. So we've had John and, and a lot of the who's who of the industry on here. So go back and listen to John. John is wonderful. Or as you affectively very,
1: very wise. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah, Jimmy, yeah. Uh, Very successful. Uh, his stuff and precision nutrition stuff has had a lot of influence on me. Some of the books, one of the first books I read early in my career that got me going on a binge of reading is switch by chip and Dan Heath, which is one of the ones that they've really pushed. Um, there's a few others, uh, what about the, I don't want to call it a trap, but there's an element of trap with especially women. Cause we talked about image-based pressure earlier, the, the potential pressure to embrace image-based media and, and, and the sexualization of their image, because one of the pitfalls I almost feel like we see, especially in the Instagram or TikTok space, there are a lot of you know, female fitness professionals who have wandered more over into the image-based, grow the following based on how they appear versus necessarily showcasing the body of work, the the evidence-based knowledge, because that can be alluring. It can be a fast road to following growth and some of the trappings and the benefits of that. Thoughts?
1: Yeah. So again, my, like one of my core values, especially within the organization is going to be autonomy. Right. And so I really want to be clear that I think it's so important for women to be able to make the decisions that they want to make about their lives and their bodies without shame or judgment. Um, at the same time, I, I definitely understand. I mean, like even just yesterday in my stories, I asked a question, like my Instagram stories, I asked a question, but I put a picture of my face in the question because Instagram will show that story to more people. If there's just a random picture of my face, right. In the story that if there's just text, like there's little stuff like that, right. There's like, but, but so that's like a very, very mild example of like, okay, I'm going to put my face in this story even though it doesn't have to be in there, because this, this question that I'm asking is important. And if I just do a text-based story, fewer people are gonna see it, right? So there's like the little pressures to do things like that um, all the way over to, like you said, the really like hypersexualization of like, you know, mostly naked photos or like photos, you know, that are really sexualized or whatever. The thing is, is some women actually feel incredibly empowered by taking those photos and showing those images, right? Like that's something that um, gives them a lot of positive reinforcement in a way that could be really healthy for them, right? There's not really a way to judge that. I do think that it's important for um, female fitness business owners to know that a following is not a business. Mm-hmm. Like you could have 2 million people following you because you post, you know, pictures um, where you're, you know, not wearing a lot of clothing and you're in, you know, really sexy positions or whatever. Like that does not equate to a business that where you're going to be able to support yourself and your family. Maybe it does for some people, it likely does not leave. It likely does not equate to a super sustainable business. And so I think the most important thing for a woman who's thinking about maybe going that route is to ask herself what her values are, ask herself what her goals are for it. Right. If your goal is to post photos on Instagram and get a lot of likes, because it makes you feel really good. Like that's totally cool. It might be worth exploring Um, you know, why that external validation is so important to you, but at the same time, like if that's what you're doing it for, like no freaking problem. If you're like, Hey, I really want to build a following, get attention, get respect you know, get clients, build my business, then that's a totally separate goal that you're going for. So I think getting clear on your values, what's most important to you, which values exercise, I I include the values exercise in my book, but getting clear on my values and that actually circling back to the business advice, getting clear on your values might actually be the number one most important. Actually, now I'm thinking of another one. Number one, most important, get clear on your values. Number two, be relentlessly focused, relentlessly focused. Um, there's nothing that can derail progress more. And we know this from health and fitness, right? Nothing that can derail progress more than trying the next shiny thing all the time. Um, and so one getting clear on your values. And so we have values, like I have personal values and we have organizational values. There's an exercise for it in my book. If you go to strong women, lift each other, search strong women, lift each other up, um, on Amazon, it's sold in Canada and the U S and, um, UK and Ireland and several other places but i'm um, getting relentlessly clear on your values so you or sorry getting clear on your values so that you know what's important to you so my number one value is make a difference like and i run every single decision that i make through that filter so i'd have to ask myself is posting a picture of myself in this position in this clothing or whatever does that does that feed my top value of making a difference probably not like maybe it'll get a little more eyes on the photo right um, but is it ultimately going to have the same impact that I want it to have and the impact that I want to have in the world? Probably not. So that like running it through that filter is not like, that's not, um, going to align with my values. So getting clear on your values and so minds make a difference. Number two is integrity. And it's hard. Like it is, it's hard to actually say like, okay, integrity is number two. Like integrity is actually slightly beneath make a difference because if I had to, if I had to take my integrity dial from hundred to 99 and it was going to 10 X my make a difference, I'm going to 10 X my make a difference all day. Right. If, as long as I don't really have to sacrifice my integrity, but if I had to like pit them against each other, right. I'm going to go with make a difference. And number three for me is emotional resilience. Um, and then we have different um, values within girls Gone strong, like education, autonomy, inclusivity, making a difference, things like that. So, getting super clear on your values because it will help you make all the important decisions that you need to make, both in your life and your business. And then, two is being relentlessly focused. So, do not get distracted by the next shiny thing. Do not, um, for me at least, like again, this is going to be one of those contextual pieces of advice. For the last however many years, people have been like, "Let's collab. Let's do this. Like, let's work on this project together. Even let me let me have you on my podcast. Let's speak at this event. I say no at this point to 99.9% of anything that I'm asked to do because yeah, yeah, I'm on this podcast with you, Andrew. Uh, I say no to pretty much everything because it takes me away from building my business. Now again, JB has this really powerful, um, like when to say no kind of thing. It's like when you're new in the industry, you're probably saying yes to a lot of things. When you've been in the industry a little bit longer, you start saying no to more. Eventually you start saying no to most things then you say no to pretty much everything. Then you have someone who says no to pretty much everything for you. Right. That's like, that's like, you're the the top dog or whatever. So all of this is contextual, right. But being relentlessly focused on like, these are my values. Here's who I'm trying to help. Here's what I want to do. Not getting distracted by the next shiny thing or the next short-term payday or whatever it is. Staying focused on, on who you want to serve, what you want to do for us. Those have been, I would say um, probably two of the most valuable things that I could share for Girls Come Strong.
0: I love the whole, <clears throat> especially about saying no to stuff, because it is going to come to a point. I mean, even in my own career, there's a lot of stuff that's spiraling and going kind of crazy that I just, I have to turn around and say no to. There's still certain things I, I make a very deliberate point. If someone asked me to be on their podcast. I'm at the stage where I'm still saying, yes, I can make it work, but it makes sense. So I feel honored that you'd come on. And I actually, in order john as i said did my podcast a while back and i knew full well that series of that rules those things that because he always tells a story about the trip to going to the trip to i think it's um i can't remember is greece or italy but something he really wanted to do but he ran original
1: olympic at the site of the original olympics yeah
0: right and does this help his family does this help his business whatever and he decided not to go and you and know i think he told that story again recently i think it was in the presentation but it's, it's a good filter to at least start thinking in terms of... I also like you mentioned 10, 10X. So I, I'm assuming that probably... You take that from grant cardone's book the 10x rule which has got some weird fluff in it but it's actually a good mindset and i recently just redid it so it just sort of a, a little coincidence i, I haven't
1: it. actually read it i haven't actually read it so yeah i mean i i'm not i'm not saying i definitely didn't know 10x didn't originate with me just a, a phrase it's, that it's, i
0: had you know no one necessarily owns these things he just happened to write this book there's some stuff in there that like he basically also says say yes to everything you just somehow make it work there's going to be some incongruencies with what you just said, with what Grant said.
1: Well, that's the context, right? That's what, like...
0: There, there's some really good stuff in that book in terms of just like brute force make it happen, be relentless. But there's also going to be some stuff in there that is not going to resonate with people. Anyway, he's a bit rah-rah, kind of that Tony Robbins type. Uh, yeah. And, of
1: and to be clear, I did say yes to base to everything in the beginning, everything. I said, yes, I was on every single podcast. I wrote any article. I showed up to any event for, spoke for free constantly. Like, you know, I did all of that. Wrote for free, spoke for free, helped people for free, trained people for free, like did all of that, put in years and years and years of um, you know, paying my dues in that way to get to the point now where somebody says no to most things for me.
0: <laughs> and you've earned that right. right? You have a, <laughs> a legacy in the entry. The things I said at the very beginning, not every every guest that comes out here gets that kind of an introduction. Well, um, thank
1: you. And
0: One quick thing about you saying about the image-based stuff and photos too, in your media is with our followings, there is value in creating a relationship with the people who are following you. This is something that came up recently. I was talking with Jordan Syatt. I know he's definitely doing this stuff where they've pivoted away from that, mostly that Twitter box text-based thing, which you and I both do a lot of. It's got a little picture of us and our, our name on it to they're obviously doing reels, reels are, and, and TikTok is, my, is more popular, videos big. But Jordan and some of the other people in our industry would take that Twitter box and then put it in a smaller corner of a bigger picture of them. And then I noticed a lot of other creators started copying it. I'm like, no, 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 that doesn't necessarily work for you because Jordan and Sohi have these monstrous followings from years of doing what they've done and all the career capital they've accumulated. And what Jordan has literally told me is he's more interested in actually creating that relationship and being visible to the people who are already there versus trying to attract new people. So there is something to be said for people seeing you, images, pictures of you in your media so that way they have a relationship with you. There would be people who have massive accounts who mostly paste, uh, post text-based stuff, who have tons of followers, and a follower could walk past them on the street and the follower wouldn't recognize them. So you still want to have that relationship. And I'll say this, people want to have a relationship with you. They actually want to feel connected to you if you are in an educational leadership space within the industry. Um, trying to think had anything else. I mean, that was really wonderful. I appreciate your time. Uh, let's let everybody know where to find you. Obviously find your book, I, you know, your website, your media.
1: Yeah, totally. So, um, um I am most, I most active on Instagram. So that's at the Molly Galbraith. If they're a health fitness, nutrition professional, they want to learn more about our certifications. We have two of them. One is our women's coaching, our GGS one women's coaching specialist certification and covers coaching adult women across their lifespan. Um, and that covers coaching psychology, anatomy and physiology, exercise, rest, recovery, programming, common medical considerations that impact women. So, um, you know, we dive deep into menstrual cycle and menopause there, but we're also talking about things like Hashimoto's and PCOS and, um, you know, um, uh, digestive disorders and things again, within a coach's scope of practice, what do you need to know about this? So that if your client is struggling with this, you can help refer her out to the right person. So that's one of the certs. And then the other one is our pre and postnatal coaching cert it's very specific to women um, during pregnancy and about the first year or two postpartum. But again, we cover coaching, psychology, anatomy and physiology, how it changes, exercise, rest, recovery, programming, all that stuff. So if you want to learn more about coaching women, if you listen to this and you coach women, um, check out our certifications. You can find those if you just go to girlsgonestrong.com, the very top. There's, um, I think this says professional education and they, you can learn more about both of the certs or you can do a Google search. My book, Strong Women Lift Each Other Up. Um, came out just over a year ago, and yeah, it's a really proud of what we've created. It's not just a book that you read; it's a book that you do, and it's a book that will help you change your own life so that you can help other women change their lives. So it's about getting right with yourself so that you can become a strong woman who lifts other women up, and the actionable, tangible things that you can do in your everyday life um, to do that and to create a better world for women and girls. So. You can Google strong women, lift each other up, or you can go to Mollygalbreth.com forward slash book. And then, you know, GGS, we've been publishing for 11 years. We have over a thousand articles. We've got, I think 15 free five-day courses at this point, you know, all kinds of stuff. So basically anything that you want to find out, you can do a Google (laughs) girls gone strong (laughs) and then Google, you know, whatever other thing you're wanting to learn about.
0: That was wonderful. I really appreciate you taking the time. Of your valuable time, which you usually say no to this sort of stuff, so but it was great to get to hang out with you as well in uh, in Florida, and I know we'll uh, we'll see each other at future events. Uh, for everybody listening, um, please go check out Molly's work, okay, uh, if you haven't already. And if you are a if you're someone who is finding my podcast for the first time through Molly's media, well, if you take a scroll through my guests, I mean, sure, there's a lot of guys across the industry, but I've also had Sohi Leon. A number of times so he's wonderful Jill Coleman um, a good friend Kelly Coffey who does some really really wonderful stuff in Smolder episodes I really need to get Kelly back uh, my friend Melody Schoenfeld does wonderful things Susan Niebergall there are going to be some really great people that I think you'd enjoy especially if you're interested in you know the the female industry leaders who are doing good work so check some of those episodes out maybe you'll stick around and subscribe thank you Molly appreciate it
1: thanks Andrew